Let's go to God in prayer once more before we go to his word. Let's pray. Father, as we turn to this text, we do want to hear from you. We need to hear from you. And Lord, we pray now that from this text, you would give us hope. And for some here today, Lord, we, we pray that they might first set, see that they, they're in need of hope. And so, God, we, we pray for your mercy now. We pray for your help. And we ask for your blessings upon this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, according to Bible Gateway stats, we're finishing up a series in one of the least read books of the Bible. Maybe because it's small and forgotten, or maybe because it's just not a feel-good text. In The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, Carl Truman explains how we've changed our method for understanding the self. We used to look outside to what we observe in our community to understand who we are. But now we look inside ourselves to how we feel to understand who we are. Those feelings interpret meaning, both for ourselves and the world that that we see around us, shaping what we believe is good or bad, true or false. Well, the Bible's truth from God... And here's the thing about Nahum. It may not feel good, but it's meant to be felt. It's clear from both the vivid descriptions of God's judgment and just the arrangement of the text that we're supposed to feel this. And since we're supposed to feel it, what do we do with a book like Nahum? Apparently, we avoid it, just based on stats. But if we read it, we might reject it, because it doesn't feel good. And yet, Nahum means comfort. That's because this book is for God's people, but it concerns their enemies. So this morning, I want to invite you to feel the truth of our text today. And I want us to feel it with some humility so that we can hear it rightly. Which can be hard if you've never been a victim of serious evil. Now, if your basic life experience has always been an American one that's characterized by general peace and prosperity, if that's your experience, then I think we all understand that any notion of justice that includes great suffering might seem harsh and unloving, and it just, it just tempts us to reject it. But consider with me this New York Times story that ran shortly after ISIS invaded Iraq back in 2016. ISIS offered residents a choice. They could either convert or pay the jizya, the head tax levied against all people of the book, Christians and Jews. If they refused, they would be killed, raped, or enslaved, their wealth taken as spoils of war. Survivors say that men and women were separated within the first hour of their capture. Adolescent boys were told to lift up their shirts, and if they had armpit hair, they were directed to join their older brothers and fathers. In village after village, the men and older boys were driven or marched to nearby fields, where they were forced to lie down in the dirt and sprayed with automatic fire. The women, girls, and children, however, were hauled off in open bed trucks. If you're one of those survivors, or you could talk to them, what do you say? Here's why we need the truth. The hard, comforting truth of Nahum. This world is full of evil. 
And sometimes we or those that we love are victims of that evil. And something deep within us needs to know that God sees, cares, and acts. And we need this book because you might be an enemy of God. And you have no idea how wicked your own sin is in His sight. We need this book. So if you have your Bibles with you and you haven't already, please turn with me to Nahum chapter 3. Nahum chapter 3, if you're using one of the church Bibles there, you can find that on page 830. 830, and if you're new to the Bible, the large bold numbers are the chapters, and the smaller numbers are the verses. Now, as a reminder, as you might have guessed by now, Nahum preaches at a time of great distress. The Assyrians are on Israel's doorstep, and they know what kind of evil awaits them. Because for hundreds of years now, they've watched the Assyrians' brutal campaigns just sweep across the entire known world at that time. And everywhere the Assyrians went, there was absolute chaos and carnage. Upon conquering a city, they would burn it, and then they would leave the streets covered with dismembered bodies. Just to get a picture of the character of this people during Nahum's time period, listen to what the Assyrian king Ashurbanipal did to his enemies. He himself writes, or says, As for those common men who had spoken derogatory things against my god Asher and against me, I tore out their tongues and abused them. As a posthumous offering, I smashed the rest of the people alive by the very figures of the protective deities. Their cut-up flesh I fed to the dogs, swine, jackals, to the birds of the sky, and to the fish of the deep." That's the kind of torture or future that God's people were fearful of. And then Nahum receives this vision from the Lord. And it's clear from this book, God sees, God cares, and He judges evil. Which is good news for God's people back then. And it still is today. It means that in the midst of our distress... In the midst of everything that we see in this world that's wrong and confusing and that we want answers to and that we want to stop, it means that we can find rest in the certain hope of God's certain judgment. That's what I pray we'll come away with from this book. Find rest in the certain hope of God's certain judgment. Now, we're going to come away with that today, hopefully, by mainly meditating on what happens to God's enemies. So I don't expect most of this to feel good initially. But in order to be comforted by the truth here, we have to know the truth of God's judgment against all evil. So here's what that looks like in the text. First, there is no comfort. This is verses 1 through 7. There is no comfort. Second, no protection or escape. Verses 8 through 17. No protection or escape. Third, only certain judgment. 18 through 19. There is no comfort, no protection or escape, only certain judgment for God's enemies, which are the enemies of God's people. So first, there is no comfort. Look at verse 1. Woe to the city of blood, totally deceitful, full of plunder, never without prey. So chapter 3 begins as an oracle of woe. This is a word of judgment. It's also what a funeral, a funeral procession would cry on its way to the graveside. 
Whoa. Whoa. We're reading about Nineveh's funeral. And God's speaking at the service about the character of this once great city and the source of its greatness, starting with bloodshed. Assyria killed to advance their prosperity. They killed to maintain their prosperity. Doesn't that sound evil? I mean, their life and prosperity was built on a culture of death. That reality takes my breath away. Especially when you think of the reasons our culture champions abortion. Now, no doubt there are reasons for compassion and grace towards those who have had an abortion. And I just want to say that the church needs to come alongside those that are facing that decision or are recovering from that decision. But right now, just forget about the the individual circumstances and persons for a minute and just think about the culture of death that is the industry of abortion. It makes money by killing on the basis that killing will help parents be happier and potentially not as poor. And then think about what God says here. And it's not just the abortion industry. Warfare still plays a huge role in protecting our own financial interests around the world. It it protects the American way, as it does other countries. War has done that. So human nature doesn't evolve. Nineveh had been known for this kind of wickedness for a long time. That's why God had sent Jonah to them, saying, Preach against it, because their wickedness has confronted me. And that wickedness also included deceit like when they offered a false peace treaty to Hezekiah. And they grew ruthlessly by devouring other cities and taking home the plunder. So the description of this city following the woe suggests that retribution is coming. Nineveh was built on bloodshed, deceit, and an insatiable appetite for more plunder. But God is coming to rescue his people. Verse 2, the crack of the whip and rumble of the wheel. Galloping horse and jolting chariot, charging horsemen, flashing sword, shining spear, heaps of slain, mounds of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over their dead. I mean, all of a sudden we're in battle. The text wants us to feel how swiftly judgment will come. There's no transition here between verse 1 and 2. This great city, full of pride, is being described, and then suddenly, it's falling. It's like an ambush of God's wrath in the text. And it's all because, verse 4, because of the continual prostitution of the prostitute, the attractive mistress of sorcery who treats nations and clans like merchandise by her prostitution and sorcery. Vengeance comes swiftly in verse 2 because the God who is slow to anger has seen the continual prostitution of the great prostitute. Nineveh said to the nations, come to me to get what you want. And she got rich in the process. Her power and wealth gave Nineveh the kind of control over the nations that was both alluring like a mistress, and controlling like a sorceress. I know the analogy to modern-day prostitutes certainly breaks down here, but the point is Nineveh got rich off of other nations one way or another. And there was seemingly no end to it. It was going to keep on going. But judgment's coming. It's like that long train of God's patience has been stored up with wrath reaching its full capacity. And now suddenly, the train arrives at its destination. And God says in verse 5, I am against you. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. I will lift your skirts over your face and display your nakedness to the nations, your shame to the kingdoms. I will throw filth on you and treat you with contempt. I will make a spectacle of you. Then all who see you will recoil from you, saying, Nineveh is devastated. Who will show sympathy to her? Where can I find anyone 
to comfort you. Nineveh made herself great in the eyes of everyone, but now she'll be a source of shame. Think Bernie Madoff here. He's a good picture. There's a guy who amassed a ton of wealth through deceiving people and robbing them. He plundered them. And people envied him. The rich and powerful wanted to be around Bernie until his great fall. And then suddenly, everybody saw him for what he was. And no one wanted to identify with him again. He's a source of shame for people. And that's the way it will be for this entire world system when everyone who participated in its lust, who sided with its power over God's truth and against his son, is suddenly brought down. And there won't be a second chance on that day. In fact, Nineveh sounds just like the city of Babylon in the book of Revelation. Babylon's a picture of a prostitute, not primarily because of her sexual immorality, but because of her idolatry. Spiritual adultery or idolatry involves looking at this woman called the world instead of at God and desiring her over him to the point where you would seek your satisfaction in her or grumble because you can't. And so people and nations will align themselves with whoever or whatever promises them what they desire or need. And for sinners, they neither desire God or think they need Him. And that's been the case all throughout history right up until today. Tim Keller talks about the squishy middle. You've got 10% of people who have one set of convictions. You've got 10% of people on the other side with a different set of convictions. And 80% in the middle, in the squishy middle, who just tend to side with whatever 10% is in power. And that 10% in power just prostitutes themselves, saying, believe like us, act like us, and we'll give you what you want. Prosperity and comfort. If you don't, you'll get punished. Look at what just happened to the five Tampa Bay players last week who wouldn't compromise their faith in Jesus. They were attacked by the cultural mob. And to avoid being socially ostracized, or to avoid missing out on a promotion, or avoid losing a customer, people will join the Nineveh of the day. You can call it political and commercial sorcery. Or spiritual adultery. And God sees and won't let it happen forever. Here's what happens to Nineveh. Eventually, the whole world learns the lesson of Ecclesiastes. Vanity, vanity, it's all vanity. Building your kingdoms here, seeking pleasures of life in this world is like chasing the wind because eventually it's gone. They had an insatiable appetite for more and more. It was never, never satisfying them. And then they're gone. And so from a spiritual standpoint, if you're doing that, you're building a sandcastle at low tide. If you ignore God and trade the joy of glorifying your creator for the temporary pleasures of this world, then you can have education and money, a beautiful house and beautiful spouse, promotions and vacations. But if you do all that without any concern for God's glory and what He wants, then you're declaring with your life, it's not about Him. And I don't want Him. As if the Ninevehs of this world have more life to offer than the kingdom of God. And that's an offense to His glory. So you you might be a good person in comparison to others. And we might say, that's a great guy. She's a great woman. But that life is no different than the kid who happily but ignorantly builds a beautiful sandcastle at low tide. Because God's judgment will come and it will be devastating, just like in verse 7. And when there's shame and humiliation associated with you, Because your wickedness has been exposed for all that it is on that day. 
Who's going to show you any, any sympathy? Who will comfort you? The obvious answer in verse 7 is no one, including God. I mean, unlike all the other minor prophets, Nahum doesn't have anything like, but the Lord. You don't hear anything like, even now, turn to me with all your heart. Nothing like, seek me and live. There's no second chance in Nahum. The day of God's wrath has come and it's too late. And that's the good news of comfort in Nahum. Because what it means is is that one day, every form of evil and oppression will finally end. It will be no more. So when your friend wants to know where God is, when you read about what happened in Uvalde, Texas, or Mariupol, Ukraine... You can say, based on Nahum, my God is in heaven, storing up his almighty wrath for the day of judgment, and he will come. It is certain. And that means anytime you see a delay in God's judgment, you should take that as a reminder to quickly repent from your own sin. Because that day will come swiftly, and right now, it's not yet. So you still have time. When people are brought down, take note and be careful not to lift up yourself. You know, whether it's someone just feeling embarrassed because they stuck their foot in their mouth or someone of great position falling due to some moral failure, don't take an opportunity to gloat. Yes, there may be a level of justice to rejoice in, but don't forget, we're sinners too. I mean, especially as Christians, we need to remember we don't have anything that we didn't receive. And but by the grace of God, there go I. But because of the humiliation of Christ, there's hope. In God's amazing, gracious love, He came into a wicked world. He he came to live a perfect life. Yet it was him that was stripped naked. It was him that was treated with contempt. And he became a public spectacle. And he bore the shame of the cross for our shamefulness. And in that moment, there was no one to comfort him. Not even God. Because judgment For our sin was poured out on him as the object of God's wrath. And he did that in love so that we might be forgiven. The love and grace of God is truly amazing. When you consider the righteousness of God's wrath upon Nineveh, and then his willingness to become like Nineveh. I mean, I I lost it when I saw how similar the judgment of God upon Nineveh is to the judgment upon Christ. And to know that Christ did that for me. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, you need to see that the coming judgment is certain. And you need to look at the cross and the judgment there and know that hope is also certain. And you need to believe and give your life to Christ. That's the only place to find comfort for the sinner. Outside of him, there's none. God's wrath is coming and there's no protection or escaping from it. And that brings us to the next point. No protection or escape. Verse 8. Are you better than Thebes that sat along the Nile with water surrounding her, whose rampart was the sea, the river, her wall? Cush and Egypt were her endless source of strength, 
put in Libya were among her allies, yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Her children were also dashed to pieces at the head of every street. They cast lots for her dignitaries, and all her nobles were bound in chains. You also will become drunk. You will hide. You also will seek refuge from the enemy. If you lived in Nineveh, you felt safe. It was much more than living in a gated community. The city itself was literally a fortress, considered impregnable. Its army was mighty, and if you attacked Nineveh, then you invited the full force of Assyria. So if you're in Nineveh, you've got nothing to worry about. So you think. But Nahum blows up this illusion with a simple question in verse 8. Are you better than Thebes? Thebes was also a formerly great city with a great empire, situated safely along the waters, making it hard to attack. Thebes also had a great army. All of Egypt was at its disposal. Not only that, but it had powerful political allies like Cush, Put, and Libya. So Thebes felt confident. Yet, verse 10, she became an exile. And she became a victim of some of the most horrible practices of the ancient Near East towards women and children. You don't even want to think about Thebes, Thebes because of what happened. The only thing that people marvel at now are her ruins. What makes you, Nineveh, any different? The answer we're supposed to hear in the text is nothing. But we, we know people today, like I'm sure Nineveh had, where they would say, well, well here's, here's what's different about our situation. You know, or here's, here's what makes us different. We love to think that history doesn't repeat with us. But friends, for your own good, don't be like that. Be humble. God is clear in verse 11. Nineveh is no different. You also will become drunk. You will hide. You also will seek refuge from the enemy. But they can't hide. There is no refuge. Verse 12, all your fortresses are fig trees with figs that ripened first. When shaken, they fall right into the mouth of the eater. The people in their fortress are just as vulnerable as the figs on a ripened fig tree. Think about that. Being a Ninevite most likely meant that you lived your life confident and comfortable inside that fortress. And day after day, life went on, and your current prosperity didn't make you question why it should be any different the next day. But all the while, as God patiently gives you time to repent, you're ripening for judgment as you don't. And then the day of harvest comes, and there's no protection from God's wrath. That's a helpful perspective for the suffering Christian when we see the wicked prospering in the world. It can be confusing when it looks like God's just letting the wicked have their way. You know, it's a, it's a question that shows up frequently in the Psalms. Why do the wicked prosper? God, don't you see or care? But through, what, through Nahum, what we see is that what looks like prosperity and comfort right now will one day look like it was all preparation for judgment. So Nahum teaches God's people to take that perspective, take the perspective of a patient farmer who understands the time is coming when the world will be ripe for a harvest of judgment. This is, Jesus, this is what Jesus says about the kingdom of God in Matthew thirteen forty one. The Son of Man will send out His angels and they will weed out His kingdom, everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun. And even though that perspective is ultimately a comfort in which we can find rest for our minds and hearts in the midst of confusing and distressing circumstances, it's not a perspective that's meant to make us prideful or vindictive as Christians. 
Because Jesus came into this wicked world the first time to preach the good news of the kingdom. Part of the good news of the kingdom is that God's judgment is coming against evil. But part of the good news of the kingdom is that the king has come to rescue his enemies and make them friends. And in Matthew 9, 36, Jesus sees the crowds and he feels compassion for them because they were distressed and dejected like sheep without a shepherd. And he says this to his disciples. The harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Not to judge, but to save. God saves wicked people. He comes for spiritual adulterers. He has compassion on sinners. So, the reality of God's certain judgment is comfort in an evil world that doesn't make sense. But that comfort isn't meant to be turned back on our enemies with hatred. We can look to the cross of Jesus, see the judgment that we deserve fall on Him, and feel compassion for our enemies. And in light of this coming judgment, we should feel an urgency to tell people where they can find refuge. Something's wrong if we can read this book and not want to tell people about Jesus. As real as this day of wrath was in Nineveh, it will be that real for people that we know before God one day. And yes, God will be just. Uh, People will only get what they deserve. But He sent His own Son to rescue them from that day through faith and repentance, and He chooses us to bring that good news to them. We can go and we can invite people into the everlasting arms of Christ. Church evangelism is a command that we might continually break, rarely confess, and maybe never repent of. Read Nahum and find peace and rest for your mind and soul in a world that's full of so much injustice and evil. And at the same time, pray that it would make you feel compassion and an urgency for those who are in the world and not in Christ because they're not safe. Though they think they are or they're trying to be. Yet there's no protection or escape. Verse 13. Look, your troops are like women among you. Your land city gates are wide open to your enemies. Fire will devour the bars of your gates. Draw water for the siege. Strengthen your fortresses. Step into the clay and tread the mortar. Take hold of the brick mold. The fire will devour you there. The sword will cut you down. It will devour you like the young locust. Multiply yourselves like the young locust. Multiply like the swarming locust. You have made your merchants more numerous than the stars of the sky. The young locust strips the land and flies away. Your court officials are like the swarming locusts, and your scribes like clouds of locusts, which settle on the walls on a cold day. When the sun rises, they take off, and no one knows where they are. Verse 13 isn't a derogatory statement towards women. It's just that these terrible and uneducated people of the past didn't even think about training their women to leave their families and go to war to die. You know? So... The point is, not about women, but that these Nineveh has become like people who are untrained for war. They'll easily be defeated. Verse 14 through 17 is another taunt. They can strengthen their fortress, but both fire and sword will be relentless in their pursuit. They can get a bigger army. They can multiply themselves like locusts. But then, just like the locusts, they'll fill the land, devour everything... And then suddenly they're gone and nothing's left. That's the whole picture and story of Nineveh. They were as numerous as the stars in the sky, stripping the kingdoms of this world of everything they had, ruling over the land wherever they stayed. But then all of a sudden they're gone and no one knows where they are. Quite literally, the devastation of Nineveh was so great and swift that its location was lost for thousands of years. Now again, we have to ask, how is this a comfort for God's people? Well, 
one of the things that makes suffering so hard is that the circumstances of our suffering are out of our control. And from a pastoral standpoint, it seems to me that the people who who have the hardest time dealing with suffering are those who need control. But what Nahum teaches God's people is that they don't need to worry about that. God, who is for his people, is in complete control. And their enemies have none. And so that you and I can feel this for our own good, especially if you're not a Christian, recognize you don't either. There's really never a moment where you're completely in control of your life. I understand that if you're an adult in the room, uh, you're, you're able to make decisions about what you wear each day. But there's no guarantee that you'll be able to make that decision tomorrow. Whatever control we think we have of our lives is largely an illusion. Because we're not that powerful. The day's coming where no one will believe that illusion. The scariest day, the greatest day of suffering, is the day that you'll have zero control and be able to do anything about it. The quicker that you can learn to trust God in all the details of your life, the happier you will be in all your circumstances. But there's no way to communicate the urgency here in which you need to humble yourself under his judgment and run to him for mercy. Because without knowing what this next year or day or hour will bring, it is foolish to delay trusting in Christ and repenting of your sin for another minute. And yet a lot of us spend a lot of time trying to protect ourselves or avoid God's judgment apart from him. How do we do that? How do we ourselves create modern day fortresses by which we can protect ourselves from God's judgment or just avoid it? I think there are four common ways we do this or strategies that we implement for escape. One, we lean on a high assessment of ourselves. Well, I'm a good person. You know, I'm, a good God wouldn't judge me. But we come to that assessment by comparing ourselves to other sinners or looking inside ourselves as a sinner to how we feel about ourselves. And so based on our comparison to some imperfect person, we feel safe before a perfectly holy and righteous God. But listen to what Jesus says in Luke 13. At that time, some people came and reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And he responded to them, Do you think that these Galileans were more sinful than all the other Galileans because they suffered these things? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you also will perish. Or those 18 that the tower in Siloam fell on and killed, do you think that they were more sinful than all the other people who live in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you all will perish as well. You see, a self-righteousness will feel like a self-inflicted wound on the day of judgment. You meant to protect yourself by it, but instead you only made things worse. It's offensive. It's offensive to say, God, your righteousness isn't so holy that I need your help. I'm close enough to looking like who you are that I don't need whatever you did on the cross with Jesus. A self-righteousness, I'm good enough attitude, is an offense to the holiness of God and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we can't depend on that high assessment of ourselves. But another way that we do this, I think, is we depend on our own assessment of the truth. And perhaps suppress it with skepticism. I'm amazed at how easily people are comforted by their rejection of Christianity on the basis that they can raise an objection. And without exploring that objection to see whether or not it even stands, just the presence of one that makes sense to them is like a mic drop. Have you ever thought about this? Bam. End of conversation. And usually those objections can be easily answered and are almost always not that important. 
But sinners have a strong confirmation bias towards anything that lets them keep living the way they want to. So we say things like, Christianity is just a mass delusion meant to help people cope with the hard parts of life. And yeah, I want to say, I think Christian following Jesus is one of the hardest things I do. Or as, as if Christianity is just a cultural thing. But unlike Islam, or any other religion, Christianity manifests itself in cultural expressions that celebrate and protect the distinctions of that culture. And goes around the world. So that Jew and Gentile, slave and free, barbarian and Scythian can sit at the same table as part of God's family and yet remain distinct in their culture. And yet at the same time, it's subversive to every culture. And without force, it changes some of the most strongest cultural expressions. Like what Jews did on the Sabbath and the actual day of worship. That's a cultural phenomenon that can only be explained by the resurrection, and that culture changed under persecution. And if it's not skepticism, then a third way we build a fortress against God's wrath is through some alternative belief system, some form of denial. All that matters is matter. And when we die, we'll escape into the ground of nothingness, and nothingness is nothing to fear. Friends, our conscience testifies against us. And it does so any time we look at a, a sky on a cloudless night. Or when you see real evil, like when a bomb is dropped on aid workers in Ukraine. Or when you see or experience true beauty and profound love in the birth of a child. Matter has no real ultimate meaning. But we know that there is. Life won't end in nothing. One final fortress I think we observe today is especially like Nineveh's. We trust in our current peace and success. And we take it as affirmation that whoever God is, if he's there, we're obviously in a good place with him. But just based on how today's going... I'm not worried about tomorrow. When in reality, that might be part of the judgment right now. That in your satisfaction of sin, you're actually taking part in the ripening process. So as a way of displaying God's glory towards objects of mercy, He gives you over to what you want as an object of His wrath. That's Romans 9.22. Whatever fortress we build or plan of escape we make, it won't work. The only certainty for sinners is God's judgment. And that brings us to the final point. Only certain judgment. Briefly, look at verse 18. King of Assyria, your shepherds slumber. Your officers sleep. Your people are scattered across the mountains with no one to gather them together. There is no remedy for your injury. Your wound is severe. All who hear the news about you will clap their hands because of you. For who has not experienced your constant cruelty? Chapter 3 started as a funeral procession. It ends as a triumphal procession. It's a song of victory by a conquering king and it's God who's conquered and he's got an epitaph for the king of Assyria. Your people are scattered on the mountains. There's no trace of your former greatness among the nations. No hope of any healing. No chance of regathering without anyone to mourn the passing of your city or kingdom. On the contrary, people will rejoice everywhere. Because who hasn't felt the lash of Nineveh's cruelty? Now, I just want to say, if part of you has been feeling sorry for Nineveh as we've gone through this book, that's okay. For one, we weren't there. We didn't see the brutality. You know, we didn't experience their oppression. We're, we're only reading about their downfall. So if you knew nothing about what ISIS did, and you only read about the war on ISIS, 
you might be a bit turned off by what you hear. And so it's quite natural for us to recoil a bit at what we read in this text. But you don't have to question God because you feel that way. In fact, you probably feel that way because you're created in His image. And Ezekiel 33.11 says that God Himself doesn't take pleasure in the death of the wicked. We shouldn't be happy about God's wrath upon others. God isn't happy about His wrath upon others. And yet people clap their hands here, and that's also okay. That's also okay. If the Celtics win the finals, I'm going to cheer and rejoice in their victory. Not because I hate the Warriors, but because their loss means the Celtics are champions, and I'm going to clap for that. So I'm not happy about the pain of the Warriors' loss, but I'm not going to mourn it either. The emphasis, the emphasis though, in the text isn't on the attitude of those rejoicing as much as it is on the wickedness of those who have fallen. No one's mourning the fall of Nineveh any more than people regretted the fall of Hitler. Good has triumphed over evil, and the world finds relief. This is the way the Bible gives God praise at the end of history as well, when, when judgment finally falls on this world's system. So what does that mean for all of us? Especially when Jesus told us to expect the world to hate us, to falsely accuse us of all kinds of evil things, even persecute us for righteousness. What does all this this mean for us? Well, I, I think Christians ought to be good citizens in this world. And they ought to care about the good of their own country. We ought to pray, Father, let your kingdom come, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So there are good reasons to lament the moral decline of any society and the effects that that has on everyone. But not because our hope is located in the place we stay. Nahum should make us examine our attitude should America be the next nation to fall. I'm not saying we should rejoice in that or that you shouldn't care or that you shouldn't work hard out of good, uh, out of love for your neighbor and family to, to seek is good. But this isn't where we find rest or hope for life. The Lord can always raise up a greater nation to take down the current most powerful nation. He establishes kings and rulers. He removes them. Kingdoms rise and fall at his command. In fact, there's a a great video that's a powerful picture of this that you can find on YouTube, which just traces all the known empires of the world from around 3000 BC up till today. And it's just fascinating to watch all the years tick by and the different colors of the different empires show up on on the screen, grow, and then shrink and disappear. And then another nation come up on screen, grow and shrink and disappear again and again and again. And one of the most interesting to me is the Mongolian Empire. Because all of a sudden, out of nowhere, it just shows up and rapidly takes over most of the world. It covers just about the whole screen. And almost as fast as it came, it went. It's breathtaking. In the grand scheme of history, that great empire and the pride of those kings that we read about, it's just a blip on the screen of history. In contrast, God will raise up a humble shepherd king. And his people won't go to war, but preach good news. And his spirit will gather his people from all four corners of the globe. And the kingdom that he establishes will never be shaken. His people will forever be blessed. And it's because of this. It's because of what we read in Nahum. One day, all evil will be removed by his judgment. And every world kingdom will be replaced by his. That's the story of the Bible. That's the one that we're a part of. That's our hope. That's our comfort. 
So when we finally come to the end of history in Revelation 19, we find two feasts that every person is a part of, at least one of them. They're either part of a feast of judgment or of blessing, one of death or of life. How you see Jesus will determine how you feast on that day. When the world falls under God's judgment, will you find rest and refreshment at at the wedding supper of the King of Kings? Or will it be more like a feast that the ancient Assyrian king, Ashurbanipal, gave to his enemies? A feast of birds on flesh, which is exactly how the other feast in Revelation is described. Only two books of the Bible end in a rhetorical question like this. And it's no accident that the other one is Jonah. Jonah ended on a question of compassion towards Nineveh. But God's grace was eventually taken for granted or rejection. And so this book ends on a question of judgment for Nineveh. The question for every one of us is that when the end comes, how will God be towards you? The only comfort, the only protection or escape from God's wrath is in God himself. And he has come in the person of Jesus Christ that we might have that comfort. That we might have hope today. So don't just look to the judgment of a rebellious world. Look to the judgment of the cross and find rest for your soul. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your just judgment against sin. Lord, we thank you for the hope that we have for this world. That one day all the evil we see will end. And Father, we also thank you for your just judgment against our sin on Jesus. For the cross of Christ and the hope that we have to live in that perfect world. And so, Father, we pray that your kingdom would come. Jesus, come quickly. Amen.